So hello, everyone. Welcome to the final security seminar of the semester. And um, hopefully you've been enjoying these as we've gone along. The seminar will pick up again in January. Uh, first scheduled session is January 11th when the semester resumes. Today's speaker, to close us out in a, in a, with a flourish, is uh, Julie Haney from the National Institute of Standards and Technology, which is otherwise known as NIST. And she's gonna be speaking to us on a rather fascinating topic that's near and dear to me, which is that users are not stupid. It's uh, six cybersecurity pitfalls overturned. And um, I think it will be a comfort to anyone watching this. Uh, you're not stupid, you're just sometimes misled by the technology. Um, so, Thank you very much, Julie. We look forward to hearing this. Thanks so much, Spath. Appreciate the invitation to, to speak with you all today. Um, can everyone see my screen, I'm assuming? Yep. Okay, great. Um, I'm very excited to talk with you all today about a topic that I'm quite passionate about, and that's the human element of cybersecurity. And, and in particular, some common human element pitfalls and misconceptions within the security community. Um, so this is a version, a, a slightly streamlined version of a talk that I gave at the RSA conference this past June. And so the talk is very much aimed at practitioners who are the main audience at, at RSA. Um, but the talk is really based on kind of three foundations. Um, so the first is research in the human element of cybersecurity. So I'm going to be drawing a lot on that research um, from a variety of research researchers, including um, research that's being done in my own group. Um, the other foundation are um, observations in industry. So things that are actually happening, industry surveys, um, anecdotal information, examples of things um, that are happening in the real world. And then finally, really the inspiration of this talk uh, was my own prior experience having worked for over 20 years as a security practitioner in the Department of Defense um, before I went back to grad school and got into research several years ago. So we'll get started. All right, so this is just the typical government disclaimer. I might mention some companies or products during my talk. It doesn't mean that NIST thinks those are good or bad. All right, so I actually wanted to start with a little bit of information about my group. Um, so at NIST, I'm in the Information Technology Lab, where our mission is to cultivate trust in information technology and metrology. And you can't have trust without considering that human in the loop. Um, so that's where my group comes in. We're the visualization and usability group. And we really see ourselves as being the voice of people and their needs in a field that's otherwise viewed through this kind of technology dominant lens. And to look at the human in IT, we bring to bear insights from multiple disciplines. Um, very much like um, the, the serious group, we are multidisciplinary. Um, we have folks with backgrounds in computer science and cognitive science, psychology, human factors, human computer interaction, and cybersecurity. And we work in a variety of different areas and 
the areas on the slide here are just any, some examples of, um, of, of things that we've done over the years. And obviously today I'm going to be focusing on the usable cybersecurity program. Um, and in that program, we champion the human in cybersecurity. Um, we're very impact oriented, um, so very much applied research. We want our research results to be able to inform um, actionable guidance for the, the folks that can actually make a difference, that can take action on it. Um, so people like security and IT professionals and policymakers and decision makers, so that they will start considering the human element when they're making security decisions, when they're developing security processes and products. So these are just a few examples of some of the type of projects that we've worked on over the years. Um, in the past, um, we started the usable security effort really with authentication, so looking at passwords and um, smart card usage, um, looking at um, people's security and privacy perceptions. The first project I worked on at NIST um, actually had to do with cryptographic development and how difficult it is for developers to implement um, crypto um, in products, a lot of it because of unusability of uh, crypto libraries. And then more recently, um, we've had a multi-year effort looking at children and their online security and privacy perceptions and, and uh, behaviors. Also, um, phishing, um, looking at why pe some people click on phishing emails and why some people don't click, and how do we determine the difficulty, how do we measure the difficulty of phishing emails. Um, I've worked for a few years on multiple efforts around security adoption and um, more recently looking at security awareness and training in the US government, so identifying challenges and approaches within the government for those. And then we've done a couple studies with smart home security and privacy from the consumer perspective. All right, so now we'll jump into the, the actual meat of the talk here. Um, but I wanted to start talking about the human element of security, um, spe specifically two foundations of usability and usable security. So this is the standard definition of usability. It's an ISO standard, um, and it's quite a mouthful as many standards go. It's the extent to which people can use systems, products, and services with effectiveness. Oh, I'm sorry. The extent to which a system, product, or service can be used by specified users to achieve specified goals with effectiveness, efficiency, and satisfaction in the specified context of use. Um, so let's break that down just a little bit. So systems, products, or services can be a lot of different things. It could be traditional IT, um, like your devices, software, and services, but it can also be processes. So for example, the steps involved in authenticating to a system. And these can also be security policies or guidance documents or security training. So any kind of output from security. Then we have the users. Those are just the humans involved in these interactions. Of course, goals are just what people wanna accomplish when they're using the systems, products, or services. And then we get to the three components of usability. So effectiveness is all about whether people can successfully achieve their goals. Efficiency refers to the resources, for example, time or cognitive resources that are used to achieve those goals. 
And satisfaction is really this intersection between someone's physical, cognitive, and emotional responses when they're using the system project or service and how well their needs and expectations are met. And then finally, context of use is a combination of several different things, um, including um, the attributes of the user, the characteristics of their tasks and goals, and then the environments in which they're interacting with the technology. So those could be technical or organizational or social or physical environments. So we'll be revisiting these concepts throughout the presentation. All right, so now on to usable security. So way back in 2009, the Department of Homeland Security identified 11 hard problems in information security research. And one of those was usable security. Um, but I think even though it's been a while, what the report said is still very much relevant today. And I, I love this quote. Um, the report said that security must be usable by persons ranging from non-technical users to experts and system administrators. Systems must be usable while maintaining security. In the absence of usable security, there is ultimately no effective security. And so when organizations fail to consider the human element, there can be real consequences. And I'm gonna be talking about those consequences today. So if the human element is so important, why is it often overlooked? Um, well, there's a lot of different reasons for that, but I'm gonna just briefly touch on four. Um, so first of all, the security field is just technology-centric by nature. Um, technology is often viewed as the solution to security problems. Second, many security folks have just never been trained in the human element. It likely just wasn't part of their formal or their continuing education. Third, taking a human-centric approach might be viewed as being resource-intensive and as an impediment to getting security implemented efficiently. And then finally, security professionals may hold some misconceptions about the human element and the people they're ultimately supposed to be supporting, um, which is really the focus of the talk. Um, so let's start getting into those pitfalls. Um, first, a little caveat. Um, I want to make sure everyone understands that this talk is really a no judgment zone. Um, it's not intended to be overly critical of the security field or security professionals, and it's particularly no judgment because I've been there myself. Um, I mentioned that I was a security practitioner for many years. Um, and especially early in my career, I definitely made some mistakes and learned the hard way and saw other people learning the hard way. And sometimes that was because we didn't consider the non-technical and the human-centric reasons why people and organizations don't always adopt security best practices. So I really view these as um, lessons learned. So for each pitfall, I'm going to describe what the pitfall is, and then I'm going to provide an example, um, which will either be a real world example or an interesting research finding. And then I'm also going to offer some tips on how to overcome those pitfalls. All right, so pitfall number one is assuming that users are stupid. Um, so over the years, I've been in many conversations and overheard many conversations with security professionals who believe technology is the solution to all problems and that 
users are hopeless and they're stupid. So we just need to tell them what to do and they just need to do it because we're the experts. Um, and the reality is, is that, you know, as, as human beings, we do make mistakes, um, but having this type of attitude can really backfire. It ends up creating this us versus them situation, this antagonistic relationship between security professionals and the people that they're really supposed to be supporting. And in turn, security folks can come across as being very arrogant and condescending. And in general, this type of attitude takes away user agency. It's the opposite of empowering. So instead of seeing them as, as empowered and capable people, um, you know, we're, we're labeling them as kind of hopeless and clueless. So there's been a lot of research on security non-experts and their perceptions and actions uh, that really shows that it, it's not that users are stupid, but rather they're often overwhelmed and they're ill-equipped and not necessarily through their own fault. Um, so some of my colleagues at NIST conducted a study a few years ago in which they interviewed general public people about their security perceptions and challenges and actions. And they found that these people were suffering from something that they called security fatigue. And so security fatigue is a sense of resignation and weariness and frustration or loss of control in people's responses to security. And they identified a several reasons why people were suffering from the security fatigue. So first of all, for most people, when they sit down at a computer, security is not their primary task. Um, so security tasks can be quite disruptive to what is their primary task. So they have to go through multiple steps to authenticate. They have to deal with these security pop-up warnings. And then in organizational contexts, people might think that security is someone else's responsibility, right? It's those IT guys, those security nerds. They're the ones that are supposed to be protecting me, so I don't have to worry about it. Secondly, most people are just not experts in this. Um, they, they don't necessarily understand the terminology. They can't decipher um, terms uh, like the highly technical uh, language and jargon that we tend to use. And as security people, we may have unrealistic expectations on what they understand and how well they can make sound decisions. And then finally, cognitive biases may come into play. So for example, people might suffer from an optimism bias um, where they might think, well, no one would wanna target me. I'm not that interesting. Um, we actually saw this quite a bit in our smart home research. Um, or an availability bias is also pretty common um, where someone might think, well, I can't recall anything bad happening recently, so I don't need to worry as much. So these are all reasons why people are suffering from security fatigue, and it's not that they're stupid or hopeless. So some tips to overturn pitfall number one. First of all, um, I think it requires a shift in attitude. So instead of the blame game and scapegoating these non-expert users, focus on empowering them to be active partners in security. And we need to take a bit of a step back to understand why people may be struggling. It's not that they're bad, it's not that they're stupid, there's some real root cause for why they're having a challenge. 
Second, building relationships and practicing empathy. Um, I think, unfortunately, empathy is something that tends to be lacking in the security community. Um, we need to develop this definitely more, move beyond an us versus them type of mentality, realize we're all human, we're all influenced by our experiences, goals, and expertise. And having some kind of positive relationship building with the users we're supporting not only establishes security professionals own credibility and commitment but also helps them to better understand people's needs and their perspectives all right pitfall number two is not tailoring security communications to the audience so security professionals have to communicate security information all the time um, so, for example, they may have to let people in the organization know about a new security policy or process. Um, they might be disseminating security awareness information or even trying to convince their leadership to invest more in security. But security folks might have a really hard time putting themselves in other people's shoes and might suffer from something called the curse of knowledge. And so this is about how people who are experts in a field have a really difficult time explaining that field to non-experts. And so security professionals might have a difficult time translating this highly technical information and jargon that, that we use so often into a language that's understandable to their intended audience. Um, they may also fail to account for differences um, within their audience, um, differences in people's security motivations, their needs, their knowledge, um, or they may not appeal to what their audience actually cares about in their day-to-day -day work and their lives. Um, so for example, I've, and I've seen this happen quite a few times um, when talking to senior leadership um, or executives, security folks trying to explain a security concept uh, tend to go very deep into the weeds and not provide the information that the executives actually need to make informed decisions. So they, they're just not speaking their language. Um, so this is an example from my own um, personal um, background. Um, so when I worked for DOD, um, I started off doing network security evaluations. So we would be invited by an organization um, to go and basically find as many vulnerabilities as we could on their networks. And at the end of our, of our time on site, we would give an out briefing. And then about a month later, we would deliver um, a, a thick, and I'm not, I'm not joking when I say 100 plus page report um, that included a description of every vulnerability we found, what systems were affected, and then recommendations on how to fix those issues. And the report was very much geared toward the technical folks. Um, but then we started noticing that we would sometimes do repeat visits to the same site maybe a year or two later, and they didn't always take our recommendations into account that things were often very much the same as, as when we were there previously. And so we really started thinking about, well, how can we make more of an impact? And so we started looking at our reports and realized that what we were providing was not tailored for the people who actually made the decisions about where resources might be allocated. Um, so those decision makers. So we changed the way we did the reports. We moved toward a shorter report format 
that resonated more with those decision makers and then just included the specifics in an appendix. So in the main report, we started using less technical language um, and, and information that could help with de um, decision making like prioritizations, severity of the vulnerabilities, consequences, and estimates of how much effort it would take to fix things. All right, so overturning this pitfall. Um, so be context aware, which goes back to that whole context of use that we talked about in the usability definition. So really taking time to step back and understand who are your users? What are their skill levels? What do they care about? What are the environments in which they operate? And then being a translator. Um, there's a lot to be learned actually from the risk communication field. Um, the, the, the health field, the medical field has been doing this kind of risk communication for a long time. Um, and it talks a lot about tailoring those communications to the intended audience, making the guidance digestible and achievable for that audience. And you often may need some kind of scaffolding to explain basic security concepts for some audiences. Making a personal connection can also really help, um, especially with memorability. So things like storytelling, um, referencing and recent events can all help overcome cognitive biases. And then communicating not just you should do this, but why should you do this? So how does it impact someone's job or mission? Why should they care? Um, and often, if it's um, appropriate, explaining non-security benefits in addition to the security benefits can really help motivate people. Next, mix it up. Um, use different formats to disseminate security information because people have different preferences for how they receive information. Um, so for example, a lot of security communications get sent via email. Um, it's easy to do, but how many people are just totally overwhelmed by email and just end up deleting it? Um, some people are more visual. Some people want things that are um, more in-person or interactive. Um, so using a variety of different methods can, can really help to get the word out. And then finally, enlist help. Um, so most of us are not communications experts, but in our organizations, there probably are some communications experts. Um, so reach out to them for help, especially when you're crafting a message that you really want people to pay attention to. All right, pitfall number three is unintentionally creating insider threats due to poor usability. So solutions that focus on security without considering usability can backfire. Um, so in a lot of environments, users are already pushed to their limits. They have a lot of time pressure, they're juggling multiple tasks, they have other distractions. So unusable security can really increase user burden. And that can result in the unwitting creation of insider threats. So users who are totally frustrated with security and they're more prone to making errors or making risky decisions and more likely to try less secure workarounds. So the classic example of unusable security is passwords. 
Um, I, I am sure you are all intimately familiar with um, a lot of these password policies that require a lot of complexity and you have to change your password frequently and you're not supposed to reuse your password. And especially now that people have so many different accounts to maintain, all of this complexity just really pushes them beyond their limits. So to cope, they resort to practices that actually end up hampering security. So for example, um, writing their passwords in an unencrypted text file on their computer or reusing the same password across multiple accounts. Um, another example, um, this is just one of the best stories I've heard, um, was in a, a reader submitted article in an IEEE newsletter, I guess about a year ago now. Um, so this reader wrote in and he, he talked about how he worked in an organization that had mandated a screensaver kick in after five minutes of inactivity for security purposes. And this organization had a lot of scientists and he was a scientist and he said as a scientist, he, he was often reading papers or doing other non-computer related tasks at his desk. So the screensaver was activating many times throughout the day, requiring him to re-authenticate each time. So he became very frustrated with this and he decided that he was going to come up with a solution. So he devised a method to automatically move the computer mouse to avoid the lockout. So he ended up installing a watch with a sweep second hand under the mouse and the mouse had a motion detector and he was, and it worked great. And he was so proud that he told his colleagues and they implemented this great solution too. And at the end of the article, he proudly signed his name and said, I got a lot of satisfaction from this achievement. Um, so this is an example of the lengths that users will go to circumvent a security measure that doesn't take their needs into account. And they are proud of it too. All right, so overturning this pitfall. Um, first of all, conduct some basic usability testing. So you don't have to be a usability expert. You don't have to conduct a formal usability test. You can just pilot some proposed solutions with a few representative users. Um, see where they're having troubles um, and then apply what you learn toward improving the security solution. Um, make it actionable. Don't just tell people to do things that are hard, actually provide them tools and achievable guidance to help them make the right security uh, decisions. Um, so don't just have a long laundry list of to-dos with complicated steps, break those recommendations and task down into manageable prioritized chunks. And then offload the burden when possible. So we all know that there are a lot of things that computers are much better at than people are. Um, so think about what can be done to lessen the burden on end users and put more of the processing on the back end, on computing systems. So for example, um, can more filtering be done at the mail server so that fewer phishing emails get delivered? All right, pitfall number four is having too much security. There is such a thing as too much security. Um, and as security people, though, we tend to want everything to be as secure as possible because that's our job. But sometimes that leads us to recommend a one-size-fits-all approach with the highest level of security and the most security tools. But the most secure solutions 
might not be practical or necessary in every context and may end up having unanticipated consequences for users. In addition, research has shown that end users view stringent security measures as being counterproductive to their jobs. Um, also, we have users being our IT and security staff, so overly complicated security solutions can negatively impact them as well. And so an example of that, um, again, from my, my, own, um, my own background, my own past, um, when I was um, in the organization doing network security evaluations, I also wrote um, a lot of security guidance on uh, Microsoft Windows systems. And in those early days, we recommended the most secure configurations. And we tested them in the lab and they worked great. But we really didn't anticipate that our recommendations might cause some serious issues in operational environments and end up putting additional burden on the people we were ultimately trying to help. Um, so the example here um, that stood out for me was um, Windows event logs. So logs are great from a security perspective for seeing potentially suspicious activities. And now this is a while ago. So my, um, my knowledge of what's, what the options are in, in uh, Windows for event logs is, is very dated. But back then, um, you could um, choose not to log, which we viewed as not being a good option from a security perspective. Or you could turn on logging with options to overwrite the logs as needed or you could configure the logs to not overwrite. So again, from a security perspective, we didn't want the logs to be overwritten because we felt like, well, you know, there's valuable information that could be lost. So we ended up taking the hardline approach and recommend that administrators do not uh, set the logs to do not overwrite and that they would periodically save off the logs to a backup server before they actually filled up. So ideally, we, we thought people should automate that process. So what ended up happening? Well, the administrators weren't great at saving the logs off somewhere else. So the logs filled up. And when the logs filled up, it turned out you got the dreaded blue screen of death. You couldn't do anything until administrator manually cleared the logs. Um, essentially a self-imposed denial of service with lots of calls to the help desk. Um, I don't even know, I, I guess the blue screen of death still exists. I haven't seen it in a long time, which I guess is a good thing, but this was like, you know, like, it, it, but it would just freeze. Like it, you couldn't, you couldn't, you know, rebooting wouldn't help. So you had to have a, an administrator physically go to each system to clear it. And so while this was a nuisance for an end user workstation, it was considerably more impactful when it happened to a server. So our attempt at recommending the most secure solution ended up adding much more burden for both administrators and the end users. All right, so overturning this pitfall. Um, so first of all, take a risk-based approach. Um, Avoid these kind of one-size-fits-all, most secure solutions and tailor the solutions to what is appropriate for that particular environment. Um, not every environment requires ultra-high security. And then be sure that you're supporting the capability of the users, both the technical users and the end users. So try not to put too much burden on your technical staff. Um, try to select interoperable solutions and increase automation to reduce 
complexity and increase usability for them. And then from an end user perspective, try to understand the current constraints and stresses of those end users and how adding additional or more stringent security processes might negatively impact their daily work. All right, pitfall number five is when organizations default to using punitive measures and focusing on negative messaging to get users to take recommended security actions. So we've already talked about how people have a lot of challenges when interacting with security solutions due to lack of usability and, and they don't always have the knowledge, but yet security professionals might hold unrealistic expectations that users should always make good decisions and then they punish them when they don't. So while punitive measures can be appropriate in some situations, in other situations, focusing too much on the negative consequences might be counterproductive. Um, and there's been a fair amount of usable security research about fear appeals, which is when you're trying to scare people into taking some kind of action by emphasizing the potential negative outcomes. But these fear appeals, while they may have some short-term behavioral effects, they may ultimately elicit longer term negative emotions towards security. And most concerning, just going directly to punitive measures may fail to really consider the root causes and the motivations between people's actions and their actual capacity of them to be able to avoid the incident in the first place. So there's a lot of examples of punitive measures when it comes to phishing. Um, so most of you are probably familiar with phishing simulation exercises. Um, it's when organizations send out fake phishing emails to kind of test their workforce. Do they click? Do they don't click? And if they click, then they, they have some kind of, kind of education for them to, to tell them, like, this is why you shouldn't have clicked. So I've heard of a company that had a phishing simulation three clicks and you're fired policy. Um, another company had a wall of shame in which the names of clickers were posted in a public area of the, of the company office. But the fact is, is that anyone can fall prey to a fish um, in certain circumstances. And there's been a fair amount of research why some people click on phishing emails and why some don't. And a few years ago, my group looked at this problem with phishing simulation exercises in our own organization. And they found that in addition to typical phishing cues like spelling and grammatical errors or sense of urgency, that the user context was a critical component. So for example, if there's a phishing email about something very relevant and in line with the duties of a person, in their day-to-day -day work, they're going to be more likely to click because they don't want to mess up their jobs. So in the study, there was an example of a financial group that had recently been late on an invoice, and they'd gotten some, some negative feedback on that. And a few weeks later, one of the phishing simulation emails that sent out happened to be about an unpaid invoice, and they didn't want to be late on another invoice. Um, so there were several members of the group that clicked on the link in the phishing email. Um, so yeah, there's probably some things they could have done to kind of step through and identify that as phishing. But um, they were really sensitized to these type of emails coming in. And so should we punish them harshly for really trying to be diligent in their jobs? That might not be the be best path to go down. 
So overturning this pitfall. Um, so to motivate people to take action, security professionals should honestly, definitely honestly communicate the severity of the threat and the potential consequences, while being careful though not to overstate these. But in addition to motivation, users have to have confidence in their ability to do something about the threat, which requires them being provided with specific instructions and tools. Because if people don't feel like their actions will actually mitigate the threat, they're less likely to choose to act. And then don't rely on fear of punishment alone. Um, I did, a, I mentioned I did a, um, I don't know if I mentioned I did, but I, I did a, a, a study recently about security awareness programs in the government. And there were several participants that talked about the importance of positive reinforcement and recognizing good security behaviors. Um, so even um, simple things like they had like little friendly competitions or they would give out small trinkets or awards or even simple thank yous could really help. And then being more collaborative and instructive rather than punitive. Um, there's a book called Fishing Dark Waters that talks about one organization's successful paradigm shift in dealing with repeat fishing clickers. And they moved from a very punitive stance to one that was more collaborative and one-on-one. -on -one. Um, so working, like meeting with people that were repeat clickers to understand, you know, why they were doing this and how they, you know, what did they need to be helped? And they really saw marked improvement in their phishing responses and reporting because of that. And our final pitfall is not considering user feedback and user-centric measures of effectiveness. So from a technology perspective, we know that getting good security metrics is a big challenge. Um, so for example, it's very difficult to measure security return on investment. And in this technology dominant field though, organizations might not consider that part of determining the success of their security efforts should be focused on gathering data about how users' behaviors and attitudes are being impacted. So I mentioned I was studying government security awareness programs um, in the government. We're all required to complete annual security awareness training. Many of you might be required to complete similar training in your organizations. And really the purpose of the training is to compel long-term and positive security behaviors in the workforce. But in the government and as well as in other sectors, there's a big emphasis on compliance with these training mandates. Um, so, you know, did all employees complete the training? Yep, then our security awareness training program is, 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 is a success. And we did in, in our study about these security awareness programs, we confirmed that compliance for the majority was the most important indicator of success of their security awareness programs. But the problem is, is that compliance might not actually be effective in meeting the intended goals of actually changing employees' behaviors and attitudes. Um, so we know that employees often find security awareness training to be a boring, check the box activity. They race through to complete it. I know I do. 
Um, so how much are they really retaining? What are they getting out of it? What's being translated into actual action? We keep seeing the same user error security incidents year after year, but we often have no idea what the training is accomplishing. Um, we don't know if there's gaps in the training. Are there other areas that we need to address? Do we need to do it differently? And that's because we're not consistently measuring anything to tell us. Um, what, um, what that training is actually doing. All right, so overturning this pitfall. Um, first of all, you got to gather that user-centric data. Um, focusing on indicators of people's security attitudes and behaviors. Um, so I like to think of um, the first we identify the symptoms. Um, that, you know, identifying that there is a problem to begin with. So for example, Help desk calls can reveal things that users are really struggling with. Looking at user level security incidents like phishing clicks or security violations can inform us about where users might need more support or training or even better solutions. But then once you identify the symptoms, you need to get to the root cause. And to do that, you have to understand the context that the users are working on and go straight to the source. So go to the users get their feedback. Um, this could be done, it doesn't have to be, again, super formal or involved. It could be um, surveys, it could be little focus groups or one-on-one -on -one or small group meetings, um, providing a feedback mechanism so that people can anonymously communicate their security issues and thoughts without fear of appraisal can also really help. And then you need to use the data to actually drive improvements. And then tell people that you took their feedback into account um, and that you use that to help improve the solutions because people wanna feel that they've been heard. Um, they wanna feel that sense of ownership. All right, so those are the pitfalls. Um, so just some parting thoughts. Um, so I really believe that considering the human element ultimately leads to what should be one of the big goals of a security professional, and that's empowering users to be informed, capable, and active partners in security, rather than seeing them as hopeless or stupid. Um, because security has enough problems um, in which security professionals can't solve all of those alone. We need everyone else um, to be empowered to uh, work towards solving some of those problems. All right, um, with that, I thank you very much. Uh, my contact information um, is on this slide. Um, there's also a URL and a QR code to our usable cybersecurity website. Um, we have um, all kinds of things on there, our publications, presentations, um, there's videos on there, blogs, all kinds of things. So um, I encourage you to check it out. And uh, we always like to hear feedback or ideas that you all might have. And I think we have a few minutes for questions. We do, we do. Thank you so much. That is a, a, a great reminder, I think, to our audience that the, the technology is important but so are the people. And that's really key to improving things. Um, and it's great to know as well that NIST has a group continuing to work on these issues. Um, I'll point out for the students who are present and others who listen in 
on this, that um, NIST does have opportunities for interns and occasionally employment. Uh, so if this is an area that interests you, if you have background in this, that would be another reason to contact uh, Julie's group. Uh, they they regularly produce, if you're not familiar with NIST, they, they produce some wonderful documents with guidance on a variety of things uh, of interest to us or in the area of cybersecurity and human factors. But they cover all kinds of technologies and policies do evaluations for uh, the government in general, setting standards on things like forensic technologies. Encryption is certainly a big area. They also have a very large metrology lab where they do work on time and measurement. They're the ones who have the national standards on those things. It's a great organization, and I would encourage you to investigate if you are not familiar with them. Yep. Uh, with that, if people have questions, the Q&A, is open and that would be the place where you should ask. Um, and there is one. I, can you see that, Julie, or do you yeah. want me to read it? I, yeah, I can see it. Um, oh, I'll, re I'll read it out loud too. Um, do you have suggestions for getting past the compliance chasers? Tech folks, tech folks and C-suite managers are equally guilty of this, stopping the moment they get the check checkbox on an audit, pushing everyone to do better without alienating humans in the organization? Um, great question. Um, the thing with it's compliance is a really tricky issue because, um, yeah, I mean, or it's they have to comply. It's a mandate. They have to do it. Um, so I'm not surprised that it, it gets um, prioritized. Um, you know, the thing with compliance is it brings us all up to a minimum kind of standard or baseline. Um, so it's often better than nothing, but it's often uh, misinterpreted or it's um, it's done to, it, it doesn't fulfill the intent of the compliance to begin with. Um, I don't, I, the suggestions I think that I have is about how, so it's not just about the checkbox, it's about how doing better actually can impact negative, how, how it can positively impact the organization. Um, and I think, again, putting things in terms that the decision makers care about. Um, so it's not just about, oh, I have to check this box, but okay, if we do this, then um, these these positive outcomes could happen for the organization. Or if I don't do this, or if I only do the minimum, this is what we're losing out on. Um, so again, you know, looking to see what the decision makers in the organization value and putting it in those type of terms. It's not. It's definitely not an an easy, um, an easy thing to solve. It's like, yeah, compliance gives us better, you know, more than nothing, but you know, there's pitfalls with that as well. If I may, Julie, let me suggest um, amplification of that. Most compliance is centered around the minimal necessary, the, the minimal considered to be base protection. And if you're happy with only doing the minimum, then uh, sure, compliance is enough. But if you actually want to have excellence, if you want to actually 
as, as Julie said, if you want to actually do better and not miss out on opportunities, then compliance alone is not enough. You actually have to understand the deeper issues and do better. Absolutely. Well said. That's a great, I think, I think we're, we're, we're both, both in line on that. Yep. Uh, uh, and and that comes from experience. Uh, we both different experience, different audiences, but but it, it's very obvious if you've been out there for a while. Yep. Um, other questions. I think it was such a clear presentation that it's fine. I think we're out of time anyway. Yeah. Well, it's. It's also the case that as the last week of classes, uh, there's a certain amount of shell shock for many of our yeah. students. Good good luck to you all with your finals and everything, all the students that are on and, and all the, the faculty. <laughs> good luck with, with your end of the semester too. It, it, is, a, it is a kind of a stressful uh, 10 days from here uh, to the end. Yeah. But, um, Again, let me tell everyone listening in, um, this is the end of the semester, the last uh, talk for the semester. We will resume in January, and you can visit the webpage to see the lineup of speakers. I'll also note, next year is the 25th anniversary of the founding of Sirius, and that's a big milestone. We would encourage all of you to put our symposium, March 28th and 29th, on your calendars to plan to attend. Uh, and help us celebrate. We're really looking forward to uh, making that an event. And with that, I want to say thank you so much, Julie, and uh, hopefully we'll get to see you in person at some time. Uh, you're welcome to come out anytime and visit with uh, our, our faculty and students and see what we have. Great. Thanks for having me. Thanks, everyone. Goodbye, everyone. Have a wonderful holiday season. <laughs>